0: Welcome back to Dolby Creator Talks. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. It has been a wild, busy, and because of the work stoppages, compressed Academy Awards season this year. But we are wrapping up our coverage of the 2024 Academy Awards with these special roundup episodes, featuring interviews with the nominees in three important categories, Best Original Score, Best Sound, and Best Cinematography. We're releasing these episodes now right before the official end of Oscars voting in the hopes that maybe these interviews will make it just a little bit easier for you to fill out your Oscar ballot, whether you are an Academy voter or you simply want to do a little bit better in your annual Academy Awards office pool. Since we're covering Best Original Score today, we welcome back our regular guest host, music journalist John Burlingame who conducted these interviews with the nominees. As we do every year, we invited all of the nominees in each category and the nominees for Best Original Score in alphabetical order by film, Laura Cartman for American fiction, Ludwig Goranson for Oppenheimer, John Williams for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, Jerskin Fendricks for Poor Things, and Robbie Robertson for Killers of the Flower Moon. Unfortunately, John Williams was not able to join us in conversation. And as you probably know, Robbie Robertson, sadly, passed away last summer at the age of 80. For your convenience, we have an index with time codes for each of these interviews in our show notes. Now, these are just segments from the full length conversations we've been conducting for the past several months. So if you'd like to take a deeper dive, we will have links to those full length individual episodes also in our show notes. For this episode, we begin with Laura Cartman, who is celebrating her first Academy Award nomination this year for her score for American fiction from episode 178 earlier this month. So how did American fiction come to you? Did you know the
1: filmmakers or the producers?
2: No, I didn't personally. I you know, I People have asked me this question, and I know I should really ask Cord and the producers like the truth, but I almost don't quite want to know it, you know. But um, my agent submitted a reel, and it's funny because he made me remake it. Uh, The first reel I sent was like straight up jazz, and he said, no, not jazz, jazzy, you know. So we redid it, and I sent it in, and they liked it apparently, um, and, um, but then Nita Costa, who's the director of the Marvels, uh, she and Cord are friends. So I think she put in, I, I didn't mention anything to her, but I think Cord asked her, um, how I was to work with. And, and she, she gave me big thumbs up, I think.
1: We should probably clarify that Cord Jefferson is the writer and director of the film. Right. And so yes. when you two started to talk about this, did he have ideas about what music could accomplish in the film?
2: I think everybody knew the language would be jazz. How that was going to work was the big question. So the temp score was classic jazz. You know, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Monk, of course. Um, but they worked. It, it was really interesting because they set up the right feeling without being a proper film score, and and so it so the temp score made it feel almost like um, almost like a play, like like kind of moments that were that that were more theatrical rather than. Really deep, deeply embedded, and sort of, sort of organically into the, into the story. And I think, I mean, they knew that they needed. Corden and Hilda, in particular, the editor knew that they needed a composed film score that sounded jazzy. But really, what that would be exactly was what was in question. And of course, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of things that happen in this film emotionally. It's funny. It's satirical. It, there's tragedy. There's there's great poignance. So all of these things needed to be able to be dealt with musically.
1: You know, I haven't asked you and maybe should, what was it about this script, this story that appealed to you?
2: You know, I never read the script. What happened is I got a meeting and they said, we want you to come over and view the film before we meet. And I am like, I really like to do a lot of preparation before I have a meeting on a film. Um, And so I didn't know, you know, I, uh, when you go see a film at like T Street Productions, which is where it was, I knew there'd be people around. So I didn't want to go in stone cold and then see the film that come out and immediately like be. A, and it, I mean, the meeting wasn't scheduled for right after the film, but you know how it is. You're out there, you're with people and and, and, and anything can happen. So I read the book oh. and um, I picked up the book and I read it and um, I did it. I think in one or two sittings and the book is fabulous. It's really, really an important thing to read. And it's important to read also because the book is so good and Cord's adaptation of it is so cinematic and so clever in so many ways. It's it's really important to read the book to understand how great the adaptation is. But anyway, um, I read the book, so I went and saw the movie having read the book. So I had a sense of what it was um, and who the characters were, of course, they're quite different in the movie, um, but when I saw the film, it was like, oh my god! I, 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 it was spectacular. And I came out and Hilda, the editor, was there, and she said, "What'd you think?" And I said, "Best adapted screenplay, best actor. You know, maybe <laughs> best picture for Lucky." <laughs> like I wasn't hired yet or anything, you know. But it was so, um, so clear that it was that it was going to be in, in the conversation to me. And, and it's funny because. I was one of the few people on the team who were like, I mean, everybody loved it, but I just said, no, you guys don't get it. This is like really, really good. You're going to do really well with this movie.
1: Can you talk a little bit about what the main themes are in the score, what they represent?
2: Should I go to the piano or is that too much disruption? No, no for not at
1: all. If you feel okay, like I'm it. Gonna
2: unplug, and I'm going to unplug and, and, and walk over to the piano here. So you've got two themes basically. This is my dad's 19, oh, there's the dog barking. Okay, now you see we're really in a home studio. So you've got two themes, the monk theme, which is. And I won't go through the whole thing, but it's that one, two, three, five. And you have this very kind of monk theme where you've got these kind of block chords, right? This is what he did with a, you know, with a, with a big right hand that would move uh, really well, but often that's very monk, right? So the whole thing is structured like that, and it's in 5-4. So it has that kind of... It has that, that kind of Jay Brubeck feel, but it also has that not quite even feel, right? And then the family theme. Here I go talking at the piano,
0: right?
2: <laughs> here you see it demonstrated, just like Helene taught me. See, I can do it. Um, but here you have the uh, the family theme, which is this kind of gorgeous... Thing that moves and sways and works in a way that I think works for this particular family. And, oh gosh, I've, now I've lost everything on that we're recording simultaneously. But see, I told you, Dolby, we would screw this up. Um, but anyway, the, the the whole point of the family theme is that you have this theme... That moves and it's not ever even. And when it's played with two instruments, which it almost always is in the score, they don't play quite together. So, you know, I can't do it, doing it myself, but. So that's the kind of, the kind of feel of that, right? And that's how it works throughout the score. Music
1: It might be nice. You've mentioned Elena, uh, your flautist, and I know you're one of the two pianists, but maybe you should talk to me about who the other pianist was.
2: Well, she's just this legend, Patrice Russian, amazing composer, amazing pianist. And um, she came over here and played the same piano. And the idea was her fingers moved and did things in ways that my fingers don't. And um, and so I wound up really incorporating her into the into the score in all kinds of magical ways, I think.
1: And I wonder if you can maybe I, I just love the backstory of your piano so much. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk for because I, mean, I think that piano itself, which is such an integral part of the score, that piano yeah. itself has a great backstory. I wonder if you could talk about that.
2: Well, it does. It does. It belonged to Sidney Gileroff, who was the chief hairstylist for MGM, who, by the way, is the producer of this film. So it's it's pretty crazy synergy and Sydney, um you know did lose it dyed Lucille Ball's hair red he did Marilyn Monroe he did Rita Hayworth Ever, you know many 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 famous um actresses of the Hollywood's golden age and he was a patient of my father's who was a cardiologist um toward the end of his life Sydney did not have a lot of money sadly and he wanted to give something meaningful to my father for all of his years of, of helping Sydney and, and treating him. And so he left on this piano. And This piano, uh, I played it in Sydney's apartment. You know, he had an apartment in Beverly Hills, one of those beautiful, like, you know what they are, right? They're, you know, they're just great. And uh, Vladimir Horowitz apparently had played this piano and it was, it was really, um, really legendary and um but it had been sitting around for a long time uh at my my stepmother smoked so it had been around a lot of smoke and i sent it to my piano store a restorer and said can you do something with this and he said you know i don't know let me get into it and see what what's there he said maybe um and it was it, like it, it didn't quite play right either you know it was it was just it had not been played a lot, I mean, that's just the truth of it. And um, anyway, that one morning, six months later, he called, and he said, I think we have the best time we be in Los Angeles. He said, everybody has been over here playing it this week, it's amazing. And then it came the day that we spotted American Fiction, and I sat down, and as kind of a test of the piano, I improvised the family theme, and then Nora, my wife, rushed in from the other room and said, oh my God, we have to record it. And uh, so it's about my family, too, and about my father, who was a huge supporter of mine, loved music, um, loved jazz, loved just was just a, a really a beautiful man who was a, a treated patients his whole life and gave a lot to other people. Um, and, uh, you know, I think very much spoke to me through this piano. And here's another one that I haven't said, John, you're getting two good ones today. Um <laughs> And we could go today at about five a.m after we've taken our crazy dogs out to go to the bathroom and we were settling in to watch whatever was gonna happen the front door opened and without any it was it was sh- shut very tight and I said, just come on in. We're going to be on the couch. Come on in and sit down. <laughs> come on. And so I do feel that my parents came in and and were sitting with me and um, and when we were watching this incredible event unfold.
1: Meaning the announcement of the nominations. Yeah. That's really lovely. I'm so I'm so glad you told me about that. I that
2: I think it's no, true. I do. I feel it.
1: Yeah. Those are special moments in a life. I think.
0: Many thanks to Laura. Next up is Ludwig Gorenson for Oppenheimer, who is celebrating his third Oscar nomination and his second in this category after winning back in 2019 with his score for Black Panther. This is from episode 156, released back in July. You would previously done Tenet with
1: Chris Nolan. Directors differ, I think, in their view of and their use of music. I wonder if you can tell me how sensitive he is to the use of music in film
3: chris has a crystal clear mind of what he's trying to do and what he wants to do and what he wants to achieve and i think that goes for i think all the departments i think i mean and obviously we all know how important music is in chris movies and how it's almost a character in itself but also i think what's so special about chris is that he's also always he's very open-minded to my point of view my input, my ideas. And we can have that back and forth and use that as a springboard to push boundaries.
1: So when did he reach out to you about Oppenheimer? I wonder if you saw a script or maybe just talked with him about the project before Mm -hmm. you started composing?
3: Absolutely. Um, Well, after Tenet, we, we kept in touch. We saw some movies, we talked about film, we talked about music, but he never really... But during that time, he never hints at what he's doing you know it's kind of a little secretly uh secretively in in that kind of way um so you you do get the phone call out of the blue it's like hey you want to read the script tomorrow i'm not going to tell you what it's about but you can show up at this time and you can read it so so you don't have any ideas of what it's going to be like so um and that's also very exciting to go into a, a project like that
1: so is that what happened you were called in and you got a chance to read the script and then did you guys get together
3: Exactly. Yeah. I read the script. Uh, I was immediately kind of floored by how it was different than anything I've ever read before, you know, specifically reading it out of feeling like you're, you're, you're are Oppenheimer. You're feeling everything through his point of view. And it struck me pretty early on. That that's what the music needs to do as well. Like you need to channel the whole spectrum of his feelings and what is going through and put the audience in his clothes. And 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 this emotional journey. So that was the first you know take back I had from, from the script.
1: Did Chris have any specific ideas about what he thought should be music in the film?
3: He had one idea, and that was to use the violin, the solo violin, to portray Oppenheimer.
1: Did he say why?
3: Uh yeah, he, he was he was because violin as a fretless instrument, you can go from playing a really beautiful romantic tone and within a split second you change the intensity of the vibrato and the pressure of your right arm right arm the note and you can make it into something neurotic, horrific and manic within just a split of a second And I thought that was extremely interesting, exciting. And then also my wife and, and partner, Serena Gorenson, is an inc- incredible performer and, and violinist. So, you know, I, I took that idea back to the studio and I started to record her and we started to work together on on creating these kind of um, these these you know, violin experiments that I would call it.
1: How much time did you have to experiment before you sort of needed to dive in fully and try to come up with themes and other ideas?
3: We had three months of experimenting and writing, coming up with the sonic landscape of the score, um, which I say, which I would call pre-production because it's literally pre-production before Chris Nolan goes off to shoot. So then, so for those three months, I meet up with Chris once a week at his house. I listen to the music, we talk about, we analyze the instruments, we analyze the sound, we talk about what's interesting, and we do that every week. And, and so when he takes off to shoot, he has about three hours of music that we that we've been working on.
1: Oh, so you had, you had actually written and, 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 uh, and created three, full hours of music even before shooting started.
3: Exactly. Yeah. So he has these ideas already in his head when he's shooting. And sometime I get, you know, I get a call. It's like, Hey, I'm thinking about this piece. Can we add some tension here? Can we, you know, or can you change the ending? So it ends in a, in a up, words feeling or in a you know positive note or um, so it, then the work doesn't end even though he's off shooting and then but then the real job begins when he comes back and he start, he goes into the edit bay and he sits there with Jennifer Lame and they p- start putting together the, the movie and they put together the the scenes and they already put my music in those scenes from what we already written so when I see the first cut it's already, it already has all my music in it
1: Yeah, so there's no temporary music from anybody else or any other project. It's your music for this project.
3: Yeah, and it's a it feel it makes everything feel like it's you know it's a new world. We're ent- we're already entering a new world, and and that's I think one of the magics of, um, of of a director that that knows how to use music and how important that is.
1: You know, the film it seems to me is unusual in that it's an epic story, and yet at the same time, it's the most intimate story. Of a scientist and his work and his relationships, did you somehow need to convey both sides of that in what you were doing?
3: Absolutely, yeah. It goes from a it goes from an intimate personal journey to, I would say, like an operatic um, piece, you know. And 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 the dynamics that you have to you have to go through with, and we also using we also using. The dynamics between one solo violin four violins you know whole string orchestra there's the, there's a great scene in the movie where you see oppenheimer having a, a, a his first class and you see one there's in the beginning there's one class one person coming in and you have one solo violin there's four people coming in it's four more violins coming in and then the whole class is sitting there and you have the whole orchestra playing
1: so is that in, in that sense it's it's fairly literal in terms of the, <laughs> of the string section and the class
3: yes at times it, it is very literal and there's, there's another scene in the movie where you see the the atoms swirling around, you know, yes. and, and that was one of the first visuals that Chris Nolan showed me. Um, I, I went, I had an early screen test. He invited me into the IMAX theater and I sit there in this dark room and I see, and I get hit in the face by these fluorescent lights and this these visual graphics that was just taking me, it was, it had a big impact on me and I was thinking to myself like this is what i want the music to sound like and it was also a scary thought but because i knew i wanted to do it analog you know i didn't want to use too many computers for that and how can i get that tempo and that energy and in with with live instrumentation and that was one of the big challenges
1: is it possible to encapsulate a complex personality in music I mean, I, I, it seems to me that the thing, one of the most impressive things about the film is that we see every aspect of Oppenheimer's personality, it, both his career and his and his own personal life. Um, are there aspects of his personality that require different themes or different sounds?
3: Yes, um, l- l- just like you said, I, I knew that the essence of the score had to be. Yeah, uh, we had to focus the on the emotional core of the music. That's the first couple of months. I was only writing music for organic instruments, like the strings, piano, harp, solo violin, because I knew that if we got that right, we could always later on infuse it with the synthesizers and the modern production. And, in this case that's also the trajectory of the movie the synthesizers get slowly and slowly are growing into the story almost like an impending doom
1: you bring up the synthesizers and I, I, I was fascinated by how they came in and when and what purpose they serve. I sometimes wondered, do the synths, uh, or I should say, you know, perhaps more electronic uh, or electronically generated music, are they for a specific element in the story? Um, you know, it seems too simplistic to say, well, the strings are for people and the synths are for um, the research or element, mm-hmm. uh, you know mm-hmm. uh, the, the place
3: yeah no uh, that that's 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 interesting I I feel like to to me that the way it's channeled is is that the sense to me feel like it's the future it's the impending doom that he I feel like he already you can already sense it in him in the beginning that's why it's just introduced slightly in the beginning but then you know when the whole second act starts you know that up until that time, it's all been theory. It's all ideas. It's all scribbles on a paper. But then in the second act, when you have the real physical product of the bomb, you know, they're hoisting it up in the air. You're seeing like people, they're like, okay, shit, this, this could, they could actually destroy the whole human race. The music takes a crazy shift there and goes from like this lush, organic musical landscape to just three sounds, you know, one of thumping bass um and then one kind of nuclear reactor kind of sound uh, scratching sound on the speakers and then this little little metallic ticking this just makes you feel like okay this is the ticking clock here
1: i have to wonder what it was like for you as the composer when you first saw those scenes of the atomic bomb as it first happened uh in 1945 um and i wonder you know because with those who actually physically created effects, if you actually got to see what the final version was fairly early on.
3: It was fascinating, especially to, to be there and see how they were making these visual effects, and how, I think, with a lot of Christmas movies, and, and also this one, you know, it is it's it is a period piece, and it was important to me, like, okay, are we are going to use some instrumentation from that time era? But I also want to do it in a way it can be done. And that's, I think, when things become timeless and i think with 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 how the bomb was created you know they're not using cgi they're using you know analog real effects and that that doesn't you know you can't put a timestamp on that you can't say oh this was created five years ago on on that computer you know this is this feels timeless and um and i feel also feel in that moment when 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 everything is just building up until that explosion you know I I, I can just imagine that the, 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 the use of silence in that scene was in Chris's head while he was writing the movie.
0: Next up is our interview with Jerskin Fendrix, who is celebrating his first Academy Award nomination for his score for Poor Things. This is from episode 171, which we released back in December.
1: Can we talk a little bit about your background, where you're from, and a little bit about your musical experience?
4: Yeah, I've not really talked about that yet. Um, I was raised in Shropshire, which is a very remote rural farming county in England on the border of Wales. Um, which I loved and I spent, you know, a great deal of my upbringing in and amongst nature, basically. Uh, my father was involved in the church and we came from a generally religious and also academic household so i spent a great deal of time listening to protestant church music and you know being in choir and playing the organ that sort of thing and also was very interested in literature theology general academic humanity humanity sorts of things and that was a lot of the basis of it. My father also really loved Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, which, you know, I think the, the crossover there between, you know, being very into poetry and literature and also this kind of very emotionally driven, quite cathartic songwriting, um, it made a lot of sense to me and to him, obviously. Um, and I also just spent a lot of time on the internet. as listening to, like, a bunch of stuff. I wasn't really, you know, there wasn't a huge deal of culture Going on in Shropshire compared to, say, you know, kids who have been raised in London or city centres, basically. So there's also like a really, I think, eclectic and um, unbound uh, amount of music that came out of just looking at stuff online, as well as the more uh, tangible stuff of being involved in church music. I learned piano and violin since I was reasonably young. So quite a mix of stuff. I think
1: And if I recall correctly, um, you were involved with an experimental opera
4: not long ago.: It feels like long ago. I worked um, at university. I was friends with a couple of people who directed some productions, and I wrote the music for some of them at university. And then they were given the opportunity to direct something at the V&A Museum in London. and we decided to do an experimental opera based on Alfred Jar Zubuvoir. Um. Yeah, it was very intense. When you say opera, you think of something, but it was they—they they had to slightly turn down the vibration sensors on the sculpture sculptures to uh, accommodate how loud it was. It was very. Yeah, it was intense. So, Poor Things is your first film score, is that
1: right? Yeah, that is true. So, how did you become involved with Poor Things?
4: Well, uh, yorgos was aware that I'd done this opera although there's no trace of it that you can listen to online. Um, What he had listened to was an album of pop songs I released in 2020, uh, which is an album of pop songs. And he liked it, I think. And I think he somehow in his, you know, very, um, uh, you know, interesting way of viewing things in the world, thought that that could lead to a good film score. And it definitely led to a film score. Uh, But yeah, that that was the basis in which he got in touch with me. So reasonably unexpected.
1: And it's kind of curious because I don't think Yorgos has used an original score in his earlier films. And I wonder why he, and perhaps he discussed this with you, why he felt that poor things needed an original score.
4: Yeah, I think it was actually quite a relief to me that the first director I'd worked with also hadn't worked with a composer before. So we were both very new to the experience and it was like being, you know, young lovers. And we're both a bit like, you know, ooh, a bit furtive, a bit, you know, coy with each other. Uh, so that was probably helpful. And, we, and we, uh, we, we both learned along the way how to make a film score from scratch. Um, I'm not sure aesthetically poor things is such a big departure from his previous films i think you could argue that the cosmetics of his earlier films as abstract and weird as they are are very visually grounded in some form of reality whereas this one's such a departure from any yeah aesthetic objectivity that, that i mean the first thing we agreed on is that the the music had to be part of the film exclusively no external references no temp scores we never discussed any other Composers or films or anything at all. It was so. I think Yorgos really had this idea that the film, everything, sprouts ex nihilo from the genesis of the film and from nowhere else. <laughs>
1: when people ask you to describe poor things and what it's about i because it's the picture itself is so out there in so many ways what do you tell them how do you
4: how do you describe poor
1: things to someone who doesn't know anything about the movie
4: yeah god it's it's a really hard one i mean firstly i've always really really hated spoilers so often you, you try and you you have to try and describe the film and, like, the premise is a spoiler, sort of, even though it's, like, revealed in the first 10 minutes. Um, it's, 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 it's a really... It's also just very difficult to describe. I think when I try and describe it, what does get conveyed is how emotionally I feel about the film and how I really, you know, uh, me and I know the rest of the team are just, like, extraordinarily proud of what it is. And as much as I struggle for words, you know, I have a great sense of endearment towards the film. In terms of how you describe it to someone else, oh, I mean, it feels kind of, I could, do could want to give it a go? I suppose anyone watching this is probably going to have
1: already seen the film anyway. So, you know, m- perhaps it's best to simply say, you know, it's part science fiction. It's part black comedy. It's part social commentary. And therefore, I think one of the most provocative films of the year.
4: That's good. No, it's concise. It actually covers what it's about. I mean, I think my my synopsis is more to do with you know how a yeah how a dead pregnant lady gets cut open and becomes her own daughter and then goes on a sex tour of Europe, which is <laughs> th- this this might be the more uh, the, the 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 English tagline rather, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. You know, here's, here's my my question for you:
1: is when did Yorgos call you, and were you on board early enough uh, to sort of begin feeding him musical ideas, possibly even before shooting?
4: Yeah, possibly. We we um we started talking about six months before principal photography, and I'd say ninety five percent of the score was fully written before. The cameras started rolling and I think this was very helpful for Yorgos probably and he also really wanted the on-set environment to be very immersive not only for himself but for the actors and everyone else working creatively on it so I think during filming they were piping some of the score through speakers between takes to create this sense of immersion as well as how you know all the sets are completely immersive as well um yeah I, th- I think it was a helpful thing to start early and not to be influenced by function that, Oh, you, you need a two minute piece of music here that, you know, increases intention or demonstrates this. I basically got the opportunity to write a huge amount of music based solely on how I emotionally felt about the characters or the, the places or the experiences. And I wasn't really tied to anything that was, um, temporally prescriptive. I just got to, go on instinct which i think resulted in probably better stuff so what were you working from
1: a script and whatever yorgos told you
4: yeah script and i had the production designs i had all the like the set designs concept art costume designs like most of the aesthetic stuff which was really i read the script first and i'd seen yorgos's previous films so i was like oh you know this is a you know phenomenal script i love these characters and i feel so warmly that it's going to be a sort of period piece and then you look at the artwork and it's like, oh, right. This is, you know, th- th- this is way off center. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be whipping out the Broadwood piano at any point for this. Um, so yeah, that, it was a great combination though. Like having, having a source of inspiration for the the really intense emotionality of the characters and then also a source for like how I might think about it from a more, cosmetic point of view texturally orchestration wise and that's kind of what i needed there's so much in it
2: can you
1: talk about your overall approach what your music needed to say or needed to accomplish within the film
4: yeah i think music can do a lot of things and there, there are quite a few things that musics can exclusively do and in terms of embellishing how gorgeous and ornate and and, and fabergé like the whole visual of the film was that could have been possible but i feel like you know it could have been a i don't know i just don't feel like it would, it would have been contributing much i decided i think to really run with the emotional aspect of it and there's something so so interesting about a character who is basically experienced everything for the first time Like you know sex and fear and love and and no one else realizes that this will be a literal like you know there's something very primarily shocking about any of these experiences for the first time and so being able to see what it might feel like to see death for the first time or to feel warmly to a romantic partner for the first time and be and push this really superlatively without any risk of it being melodramatic or overplaying it. Um, yeah, so yeah, I was really, I think I started out very, very much trying to contemplate what the emotions and the unusual context in which the emotions would have been being experienced.
0: Many thanks to Jerskin Fendrix. So that concludes our special Roundup episode with the nominees for Best Original Score. Many thanks to John Burlingame for conducting these excellent interviews. As I mentioned up top, we have links to each of the full-length discussions in our show notes. Be sure to check out our other Roundup episodes with the nominees for Best Sound and Best Cinematography in the coming days, as well as even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories. The best way to do that is to be subscribed to us the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information on all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, this is Dolby Creator Talks. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Karen Marroquin. Thanks for joining us.